Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're enjoying the start of spring, the longer days. Uh, I know I'm enjoying not getting home in the dark. I can feel the vitamin D levels rising here in the in the spring, so this is a good thing. Uh, hopefully last week you had a chance to catch my conversation with Dr. Corey Peacock about physical preparation and making weight in elite MMA fighters. This week we're going to look at the weight loss scenario here from a completely other end of the spectrum. And this is a discussion around disordered eating, binge eating, and weight loss. This is uh, a condition that I've seen numerous times in clinical practice and one that I'm thankful for people like my guest today, Dr. Glenn Livingston, PhD, who spent their careers delving into this so practitioners and clients can have some tools to overcome uh, this disorder. In this episode, Glenn shares his insights on his previous struggles with food, how the brain plays a key role in impacting food cravings, how self-worth plays a big role in conquering binging, the potential pitfalls of being overly restrictive, his formula of rules versus guidelines, and of course, the tremendous influence of things like social media on food behavior, as well as much, much more. As usual, you can find the links in the podcast summary in the show notes at drpubs.com forward slash podcast. And for any new listeners to the show, welcome aboard. If you'd like to get caught up, definitely circle back then to season two, episode number 50. That was our year-end highlights episode. So really loaded with actionable expert insights. So definitely check that out. Uh, And if you're enjoying the podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, then you can also please jump on board here at YouTube, iTunes, your favorite podcasting platform, whatever you prefer. Awesome. Before we dive in, in case you missed it, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is available now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones in the UK, or your local booksellers. And if you do pick it up, you'll get some free, cool bonus material from some of the interviews that I did and a chance to win lots of cool stuff. So you can head on over to drbubs.com forward slash peak for more info, uh, some of my Friends here at Organic have been giving away some pretty cool prize packs, so you can check that out as well. Amazing. A quick word from the episode sponsor here before we get rolling, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest, mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement, the only that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is really ramping up. A recent study found it's a major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. It's tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. And you can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com. All right. On to the show. Let's do this. Season three, episode 13. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran clinical psychologist and the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work from his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important was his own personal journey out of obesity as well and food prison to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Glenn, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you much so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Terrific. Well, listen, before we discuss the psychology of eating uh, here today, Glenn, can you share a little bit of your own personal story and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah. Well, uh, long story short, I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with overeaters. 
had a very serious overeating problem myself. You, you would have diagnosed it today as uh, exercise bulimia. I'm, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and when I was a kid, I figured out that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. So, you know, multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts, boxes of chocolate bars, lattes, bagels and locks, whatever you could imagine. If it wasn't nailed down, I was pretty much an eating machine. And it, it wasn't a problem when I was a kid, but when I got a little older and I was married and I had patients and a two-hour commute each way, I didn't have the time to work out and my metabolism was slowing down. And I found that I couldn't stop eating the way that I was. So I was still eating six or 7,000 calories a day. And I was getting fatter. And I found that the foods had a life of their own. It was not that easy to stop. And I'd be thinking about them all the time, which was really bad. I, I come from a family of psychologists, and my biggest goal in life was always to be a really great psychologist. And I would be sitting with suicidal patients. And that's, that's a situation where you have to be really present. You, mm -hmm. you have to lend people your soul. You know, it's, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. They, they need to feel how much you care before they care how much you know. Mm -hmm. And... I couldn't do it. I mean, I never lost anybody because I, I worked extra hard in figuring everything out for people, but, but I couldn't really be present with them 100%, and that really, really bothered me. Plus, I was getting really fat, and my triglycerides were you know, over 1,000 at one point. Wow. And, yeah, which is about 10 times where they should be, right? And, um, and, and it was just very, very frightening. The doctors were saying I was going to die in my 30s if I didn't fix this. And so being a psychologist from a family of psychologists, sometimes if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I went sure. to, yeah. So I went to all the best doctors in the area because I knew them. I grew up in New York. And from the family I was in, I knew the best psychologists. And I went to psychiatrists and took medication. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And everything helped for a little while. Everything helped for a little while, and then things would get worse. Ultimately, the way that I solved it had to do with flipping the paradigm entirely. You could, you could say that up until I was about 40 years old, I was trying to love myself thin. I had this idea that if I could heal the hole in my heart, then I'd stop eating all this junk. When I got to my 40s, I decided that all these big companies were paying me a lot of money to run these big studies. I said, well, let's be good at that. So let me try to do a study to solve this. And I funded my own study, and I asked people the specific foods that they craved and had trouble stopping, and I asked them all about other aspects of their life. And what I found were three really interesting things, none of which really led me to the solution, but it, it, the fact that it didn't lead me to the solution caused me to finally change my paradigm. Interesting. One of, yeah, yeah. One of the things I found was that people who struggle with chocolate, like me, and i I always tended to gravitate towards chocolate. We tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or sometimes depressed. And people who struggled with crunchy, crunchy chips and pretzels and uh, like hard, salty, chewy things, they tended to be uh, stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bagels and bread and pasta or pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought this was brilliant. I was all excited about it. I figured, okay, well, now I know I only have to work on my loneliness and brokenheartedness, which is not a, not a simple thing if you're in a bad marriage. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, um, and I have to help these other people work on those areas, and then we'll be able to fix this. So I started with myself, and I called my mom, also a therapist, and I said, Mom, I found this really interesting thing in this study, and you know, I am. I'm in a bad marriage. I'm a little lonely and brokenhearted, but what's... Um, what was it in my upbringing that could have set this all up? And mom said, I'm so sorry, Glenn. And I said, what? And she got this, gets this horrible look on her face. She says, I'm so, so sorry. I say, mom, what is it? And she says, well, I was really depressed when you were a kid. When you were about one year old, my dad just got out of prison, your grandfather. And I didn't know he was guilty. I just adored the man. And I, he was the only like safe heave in in my whole life, and my whole world came apart, and I was incredibly depressed. 
the same time, this was 1965, and your father was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And wow. we had another kid on the waist. So she was afraid she was going to be a widower or a widow, and apparently she was sitting and staring at the wall a lot. And she said I would come running to her, crying or needing to be held or wanting you know, a bottle or something like that. And she would say, go get your Bosco. And she pointed to a refrigerator that she kept on the floor where there was a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup. And I'd go running to it, and I'd take it out of the refrigerator, and I'd suck on the bottle, and I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I thought, wow, if there was ever... I mean, this should be a movie. And if it were a movie, then mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and we'd forgive each other, and I'd never have a problem with chocolate again, right? For sure. But... Well, we, we did have a hug and a kind of metaphorical cry. And I it did soften my attitude towards myself. I was no longer as angry at myself for the mistakes I was making. I certainly was not angry at her. I certainly forgave her. And it brought us closer, so it was a good conversation to have. But it made the chocolate problem worse, and it made the binging problem worse overall. For a really weird reason, it was like there was this crazy voice in my head. And that voice went something like this. Hey, Glenn. Do you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life, we're going to have to go red imaging and chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. It was, it was a voice of justification. And what I learned from that was that in some ways, the emotions just didn't matter. They, they might cause me to want to binge, but it was the voice of justification that made it possible. It's almost like if, if the desire to binge, if the emotional desire is the fire, then there is this fireplace, but there's this thing that pokes holes in the fireplace. And I learned that if I dealt with that thing that was poking holes, I could do a lot better. I could solve the problem a lot, a lot quicker. At the same time, I was reading about neurology, and I was very immersed in a lot of food research for, for some of the big companies. And I, I started to see that they were, they were engineering hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and mm -hmm. fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt. And, and these are things that are designed to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to make you feel satisfied. So the result is to go back for more and more and more. It's like they're short-circuiting our evolutionary pleasure systems. And I'm, I'm sorry that I ever helped them to market themselves. I really am. I feel a little bit like the Marlboro man felt later <laughs> in his life, I feel. You know what I mean? For sure, for sure. So I saw what they were doing. I remembered the animal research and what happens if you short-circuit uh, mammals' pleasure centers. There's so all these studies starting in the late 50s where they, they started out by putting electrodes in a rat's brain in the pleasure center, and they wire it to a lever that the rat could press himself or herself. And it turns out that those rats press that lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival needs. So a starving rat will ignore its food and press that lever thousands of times a day. A nursing mother rat will ignore her nursing pups to press it thousands of times a day. Rats will crawl over painful electrical grids to get to that lever. So it's almost like their survival drive was hijacked by short-circuiting the pleasure center. Now, I don't think that anybody's putting electrodes in our brains. I'm not paranoid. But is there such a thing as a chemical electrode? You know, these, these billions of dollars are going to engineer these food-like substances. You know, isn't that something like a pleasure button we're talking about? Absolutely. And, and aren't we ignoring our survival needs to to eat, eat, these plate, eat, eat these things, looking for love in a bag or a box or a container. Um, you know, you can walk out of a McDonald's these days and across the street there's often a Burger King or another McDonald's. And I, I think that these pleasure buttons are just all over the place. And, and, Glenn, and, I think, and Glenn, can you circle back perhaps and just outline the, those distinct, the three distinct areas of the brain and, and how they impact this story? You might be able to do it better than I can, but... I'm, um, I'm, I'm an amateur neurologist, but there's the reptilian brain, 
And that's the most primitive part of the brain. You think of it as the brainstem. And what it knows is eat, mate, or kill. It sees something in the environment, and there's no love there. And this is really the seat of addiction. It says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. This is why you can't love yourself out of an addiction. This is why uh, nurturing your inner wounded child is the wrong approach. Then there's the mammalian brain, which you, know, is, you can think of kind of on top of that as the reptilian brain is a fish. You can put your hand on top of that and say that you know, that's the mammalian brain. And that's, that's the seat of emotion. That's the, um, that's the seat of connection to other living humans and beings and concern for tribe and family and relationship. And it has the ability to inhibit some of the impulses from the reptilian brain to say, hey, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that we love? And then there's the neocortex, the more recently evolved part of the brain that has much more ability to delay the expression of impulse, delay gratification, so that we can accomplish our long-term goals. And in the neocortex is most of what we think of as human. That's where you know, long-term strategies and plans lay. That's where creativity and music and art are. It's kind of a combination of the neocortex and the, and the mammalian brain. That's where um, uh, spirituality and religion and identity, that's, that's where that all lives. So it's perfectly okay if you want to nurture your inner wounded child. I'm not against that. I just don't think it's going to solve your binge problem. Because, yeah. What, what I think happens when we're binging is that the... the, the uh, reptilian brain has activated the fight or flight response. It perceives there to be an emergency. It's, it's like we're living in a feast and famine world, and it perceives there to be an emergency, and it says, you better go hoard calories now. And you know your heart rate goes up a little bit. You start sweating a little bit. It's, it's imperceptible in many ways, but it's, it's there. And, um, and so the problem is that I've been spending a lifetime trying to love myself thin, when really what I needed to do was take control of this bodily organ. It's, it's kind of like your bladder. It generates a really powerful biological urge, but you're supposed to decide when that urge, when, where, and how that urge gets expressed. You can't ignore it completely because it is a biological need, but you know you don't, you don't pee in your mother-in-law's living room. You wait until you're in the appropriate time. At least I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not married anymore, so I don't have a mother-in-law, but that's besides the point. <laughs> so here's what I did. And this is embarrassing. This is, I'm, I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I've done tens of millions of dollars of consulting. I've published in prestigious journals. I've been all sorts of you know, publications and TV and radio and stuff. But after all those years and all those sophisticated attempts to recover, what worked for me, not immediately, but what worked for me in the long run, was deciding that my reptilian brain, I was going to call it my inner pig. And I was going to draw very clear, bright lines between healthy and unhealthy eating. So, for example, I'll only ever eat chocolate on the last Saturday of the calendar month again. That's a very, very clear line. You could follow me around all month and you'd know whether I followed it or not. And then, if I heard any voice out of my head suggesting that I cross that very bright line, I'd say, that's not me, that's my pig. My pig is squealing for its slop, the slop being chocolate in this case on anything but other but the last Saturday of the month. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I just tried that on a whim. And as ridiculous as it sounds, as crude as it sounds, it gave me those extra microseconds and I was able to make the right decision at the moment of impulse. It's like I woke up and remembered who I was and, and, and how I wanted to be around chocolate. And Glenn, is that an ability to sort of reframe things, or is that sort of separating, uh, you know, yourself from from what the brain, that sort of inner monologue, is is, is saying to to a person or a client? Um, reframing it is ideal, but it doesn't have to be as cognitive as that. It can be a much more primitive experience of just knowing that you are not your pig, because gotcha. at the moment at the moment of impulse, the lower brain is taking over, and, and cognition thinking. You know, the, the part of our brain that would do the reframing is the upper brain, and you might not have as clear access to that upper brain at that moment in time. So it's, it's just a very primitive, crude way of saying, um, look, I'm not my pig. And 
you could think of it as the way that an alpha wolf controls the pack. If there's a challenge for leadership in the pack, the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Come here, booby. The alpha wolf says, get back in line or I'll kill you. And it, it snarls its teeth and it lets you know that it means business. So that's what I did. And it wasn't a miracle. I started to be able to make some choices that I didn't make before. And I stopped feeling powerless. I'd been feeling defeated, and I'd been taught to feel defeated also by some of the 12-step programs. But I'd been feeling very defeated and despairing, and like there was never going to be a solution. And the best I was going to be able to do was string together a couple of good days. But I started to find that wasn't true. And I came up with other rules. Some rules were to add things to my diet. So it wasn't just I'll never do this, but I'll always start the day with two crystal clear glasses of spring water. Or I always put my fork down between bites so that I would eat a little more mindfully and you didn't have to restrict anything. I came up with a whole bunch of different rules and I kept a journal for about eight years and it was just me versus my pig. And on a whim at the request of a business partner, I published the book in 2015 and it just took off. And now we've got 600,000 readers and 1,800 reviews and people all over the world saying, I don't I, I, I don't need pig stop. I don't listen to farm animals tell me what to do. So yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many great that, quotes in the book, Glenn. I mean, if we circle back to that idea of the pig, I mean, you, you write about how, um, where's the quote here? It's your mind and you're allowed to organize your thoughts and feelings any way you want. The pig exists because you say it exists. End of story. Can you explain the significance of that to listeners? Well, there was a long time that I thought I was crazy. I, I thought this is ridiculous that I'm talking to my pig. <laughs> I said, there is no pig. This is, uh, it's all me. It's all in my head. But then finally I came to the conclusion that, well, I was allowed to separate my constructor versus my destructive thoughts about food. And I was allowed to have focus and clarity about that. And if I, if the mechanism that I used, which was a lingual mechanism, you know, like it's a piece of language that said, this is not me, this is my pig. I'm allowed to do that. It works. Yes, it's just a language trick, but it's the one trick that works. And the pig exists because I say it exists. So the pig could no longer fool me by saying, oh, come on, this is just a stupid game. I decided to treat the pig as if it really did exist indefinitely. And that's what, that made a really big difference in my recovery. Yeah, it's incredible how, uh, you know, you touch on also, obviously, initially the emotions at the start of this interview and how fear and guilt being such big emotions in this whole story around binge eating, you know, how do they play a role in, in exacerbating this whole situation? Well, behind every fear is a wish. And so there's really no such thing as binge anxiety. People say, I'm afraid I might binge. But what that really means is that the pig wants to binge. And it sounds like a stupid reframe, but it's actually very significant. Because when you say the pig wants to binge, you can add to that, but I never let it because I'm in control. If you say I'm afraid I might binge, then there is no pig, there's only you, and maybe you're going to binge. So you need to teach yourself to purge that fear and doubt and insecurity from your mind and cultivate confidence instead. It's a game. You don't have to feel this 100%. You just have to do it, pretend that I'm right. And what that looks like is anytime there's any doubt or insecurity, you say, well, the pig has other ideas, but I, I will never binge again. And you can commit with perfection. You know, like, like a, an Olympic archer, when they're aiming at the bullseye, they're not thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. I'll just do the best I can. They're actually seeing the arrow go into the bullseye, and they're purging their mind of the doubt and insecurity because doubt and insecurity will wear you down. Mm -hmm. They not only will wear you down to try to make you decide to do something else, but they'll take away the internal energy that you need to focus all your concentration on the goal. So doubt and insecurity have no place in a winner's mind. I, I, I will never binge again. And we use the word never like, there's a part of me that knows that I could make a mistake, right? Like, even now, there's a part of me that knows that I could make a mistake. I made him in the past. I, I couldn't make him in the future. But when I'm aiming at the goal, I purge my mind of that, and I say I never will again. It's, it's kind of like the way that we talk to a two-year-old. 
If a two-year-old has to, is going to cross the street, you say, little Sarah, you can never, ever, ever, ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 ever. The reason you do that is that as opposed to telling her that, hey, Sarah, you know, when you're eight or nine years old, I'll teach you to look both ways and cross yourself. You don't tell her that because you don't want her entertaining even the possibility of darting into the street. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Same thing with your reptilian brain. You don't want your reptilian brain to entertain the possibility that someday you're going to change these rules. You can change your rules anytime you want to. So never doesn't really mean never, but you present it to the pig as if it's set in stone so that the pig doesn't get any ideas about overturning your rules. And then if you need to overturn your rules, you give yourself 48 hours. You sit down and you write about it for a half hour, exactly what rules you want to overturn, exactly where do you want to aim instead. And don't let that change take effect for 48 hours so that you're never going to do it based upon hunger or impulse or, or pig squeal. You're always going to do it based upon intellect and fortitude and sound reasoning. So, um, Terrific. And, and Glenn, what about cravings? I mean, obviously you mentioned you know, we're in a world where we're constantly surrounded by calorie-dense, hyper-palatable processed food, you know, available 24-7 on, on seemingly every street corner. Add to that the general population, you know, we don't sleep enough, we're, we're overly stressed. What are some of your tools or strategies that you found beneficial with, with clients to help navigate this area? Well, first of all, you're, you're going to have cravings. Sure. And the only, the only opportunity, people are very bothered by their cravings and they ask me if they'll ever go away. And I, I tell them, I say, if you don't reinforce them, they will go away. Uh, when, are the, when is that going to happen? I don't know, but sooner than you think. I, I can tell you, I haven't had chocolate for years and years. And I can't remember the last time I even thought about having chocolate. It, it looks like a big bag of chemicals to me. I wrote it down so I know that after about two months, I had maybe one craving a week. And it was pretty intense, but it didn't last that long. After about six months, I hardly ever had cravings, but you know they weren't gone entirely. Once in a very great while, I can't tell you how frequently, but you know maybe once a month. And then you know two years later, I just don't even remember what a chocolate craving feels like. So your neurological system is very malleable. What what fires together wires together. That's called the principle of neuroplasticity, which means that if you have a craving and you reinforce it then you reinforce it by indulging in that craving, then you're going to crave it more tomorrow. Which is why, by the way, you can't start to eat better tomorrow. You have to start right now because otherwise you're digging a deeper hole for yourself. And if you're in a hole, you want to stop digging. Um, so, so you're going to have cravings, but you should welcome them because if you have a craving and you don't reinforce it, that craving is going to be a little bit weaker tomorrow. So every craving is an opportunity to extinguish that craving. So the, the only way out is through. And if you remember that, it's extraordinarily helpful. The, Very well said, yes. The other thing to remember about cravings is that because they're an activation of the sympathetic nervous system, because it seems to have something to do with the fight-or-flight response that gets us ready for action and says that there's an emergency, the activities that you can engage in which rev up your parasympathetic nervous system, the part of your brain Correct me if I have those backwards. Once in a while, I got them backwards. But the, I believe the parasympathetic nervous system is the part of your brain that cools you down. And you know, so, mm-hmm. so if, you, if you tense up all your muscles and breathe in as deeply as you can, <laughs> excuse me, and then whew, you just let it all go, and you do that three times, you're going to be taking the urgency out of the need to binge. You might still have the craving. You might have the thought but that feeling of urgency disappears and you have an opportunity to change your mind. So you can do things like that. You could do yoga or meditation or take a walk outside or step out of any situation which requires you to keep making decisions. If you're in a situation which, which is impinging upon your brain to decide important things over and over again, and there could be little things like do I delete this email? Do I delegate it? Do I reply to it or do I defer it? Step out of that situation and go someplace where you don't have to make any decisions for five minutes because willpower, all the studies on willpower show that willpower is a fatigable muscle. Mm-hmm. It's like gas in the tank. It's not and an infinite resource, is it? There are only so many good decisions we can make every day. And so you don't want to keep burning your willpower at the moment you have a craving. You want to step out of that environment and breathe. 
Um, so th those are a couple of ways to deal with cravings. And then you say, I, I don't have the craving, my pig does. My pig wants that, but I don't let the farm animals tell me what to do. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that's, I love that idea of uh, you know some deep breathing, get the parasympathetic nervous system activated to help just, just calm down that overactive sympathetic drive that can lead to a lot of this. And, and of course, that calming some of that inner chatter as well. And on this topic of constant chatter in the brain that can be telling you um, to eat these things or even telling you that you're being deprived of something, you know, how do clients avoid this idea of, of falling into a deprivation trap? Oh, well, and then I want to address the chatter issue also. Um, there are two kinds of deprivation, and you can't avoid choosing one of them. So no matter what choice you make in life, you're going to have a certain type of deprivation. Let's say that I'm considering giving up donuts entirely. Well, there's the deprivation of knowing I'll never have a donut again, particularly those chocolate frosted ones from Dunkin' Donuts. I just love them, or I used to. But then there's, so I'll never have the mouthfeel, I'll never have the instant caloric hit that you get from a donut. But then there's also the deprivation of, if I do continue to eat donuts, what's my life going to be like? Am I going to continue to suffer with a risk of diabetes or stroke or heart attacks? What are my later years going to be like? Am I going to have as much energy and ability to connect with people in the present? What's, um, what's my day-to-day -day life going to be like right now if I continue eating donuts? And, and when people stop binge eating and they get a lot of the junk out of their system, they don't just feel better. They feel so much better. It's, it's, it's almost like the difference between being alive and not being alive when people really get it. Mm -hmm. So do you want to deprive yourself of that? People will say, well, you're going to deprive yourself of having fun with friends. But most of those friends that are indulging themselves like that most people in our society are engaged in a tacit agreement to slowly kill themselves with food. And, you know, you, if you love these people, if you want them to have a good life, if you don't want them to shorten their life, or, or like most people don't drop dead instantaneously, most people suffer. They, they get heart attacks and strokes and cancer, and, you know, they get pieces of their body amputated, they lose their functionality, they have to get people to take care of them. Sometimes they have to have people wipe their butt for them. It's, it's a very unpleasant way to spend your later years. And if you care about these people and you want, to, you want to help them and you really love them, somebody has to go first. Somebody has to be a leader. Someone has to show them by example, not by preaching, but by example, that it's possible to eat well. So, you know, it's, it's not a question of, are you going to be deprived or not? It's a question of what type of deprivation you're willing to put up with. And for me, the more that I recognize that, I, I would fight for your ability to choose. Like, if you want to have donuts, I'm not going to say not to have donuts. I think life is a continuum between live fast and die young and, you know, live slow and enjoy the ride. And everybody gets to decide exactly where they want to be in that continuum. But um, when you really consider the trade-offs, I think most people will find they're edging towards the live slow and enjoy the ride part of the game because you're giving up a lot more by indulging. Yeah, I like how in the book you, you know you talk about what people immediately think of, which is what you deprive yourself of by not eating something. But you also talk about this idea of what you deprive yourself of by actually having it. And as you mentioned, sort of better health and all these things that come along with um, with, with making those decisions. And that's definitely an area that people don't naturally think of, correct? Well, your pig doesn't want you to know. Your pig would like to hide the positive future that's waiting for you if you change. If you, you know, stop overeating and stop binge eating and take care of yourself, there are all sorts of amazing things that are waiting for, for you, including a manifestation of your life, pur life purpose. When people really get this, that, and they're not spending all their time and energy overeating and recovering from it, then their energy naturally goes towards what their life purpose should be, whether that's their children or exploring nature or a work project or you know some contribution to society. You'll find your life purpose if you stop the you know binging and I guess also drugs and cigarettes and stuff like that too. Definitely, and you know, so many areas you, you cover here on the on the emotional side and things like even self worth, you know. You write about how psychologists have discovered our self-concept is so intimately tied with how other people see us. Um, and, you know, as if the self-worth is only found through other people's thoughts and feelings and opinions. How does this play out in binge eating 
or frankly, you know, anyone who's struggling with adhering to maybe a dietary or nutrition plan? Well, your, your pig will tell you that you're incapable of making a food decision unless the majority of the room agrees with you. Uh, in fact, your pig would like you to believe that everyone has to support your food decisions. But first of all, that's not possible. There are so many different food philosophies in this world. Just go out to dinner with a half a dozen people and some of them are going to, some of them are going to be promoting a ketogenic philosophy. Others are going to promote a macrobiotic philosophy. Still others are going to be counting points or calories. Nobody's going to approve of everything that you eat, no matter what you do. And, and, so the pig will say you really need these people's approval to feel good about yourself, but, but it's just not true. People naturally feel better about themselves when they perceive themselves to have more control, when they perceive themselves as the master of their own impulses and the masters of their own fate or mistresses. So, so, um, so that, that's, that's how that relates. There's a false understanding that the pig presents that we are overly dependent upon other people to form our self-concept and there is some we we need we need a community no man is an island we do need we do need love to feel good about ourselves but not as much as you think that you do and certainly you can be the only one in the room who believes that eating a particular way is good for you and you can sustain your you can sustain your purpose in that way yeah it's fascinating stuff in terms of sort of separating yourself from your thoughts and you know, having that mindset of I'm not my thoughts, I'm my actions, I mean, seems to be really appropriate there. And of course, in the book, you laid a fantastic uh, roadmap for, for solutions for folks. Um, you know, writing a food plan, and you talk about having clarity and focus in a food plan being one of them. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and some potential pitfalls of being overly restrictive? Well, boy, you really did your research. I really appreciate that. Um, because this is a rules-based approach, it's possible to use the rules to become overly restrictive. And the reason that that's really bad is because, first of all, you could hurt yourself. You could become anorexic. Usually binge eaters that I work with, they don't. It's a very low risk for the most part, but it's possible. Um, but you don't realize an addiction to overeating or an addiction to binge eating is not really just an addiction to binge eating or overeating. It's an addiction to the other side of the spectrum also. Almost everyone who has trouble with binge eating is a really good dieter. And they'll tell you that they've, you know, they've lost weight fairly quickly at certain times in their life or they're capable of going on a juice fast for a week and they feel great and they wish they could do that all the time. And I'll say, you have to stop doing that at least for a year or two until you get the binging out of your system because what you're doing is signaling your body that there are periods of time when sufficient calories and nutrition are not available for a long time. And as you might imagine, it seems that evolution has prepared us with a response that says, okay, if calories and nutrition are unavailable for long periods of time, then the moment that they are available, we better hoard all that we can get. And if you think about it, this is the only reason that feeling full would be a signal for binging more. A lot of binge eaters will tell you they have to be careful not to feel too full because the moment they feel too full, then it's like a flip switches and they have to eat more and more and more. What you're, what you're doing is you're hoarding. You're, you're, you're listening to your brain telling you this is an emergency. You better get all that you can in because it might not be available tomorrow. And so the solution is a very regular, reliable, sustainable day in and day out source of nutrition. And we live in a society where that's very possible. You don't have to go through periods of fasting. Um, at, at least for, I, I'm not saying there aren't medical benefits to fasting. I, I know that. For sure. More just the consistency is pretty key, it sounds like, right? Yeah, because it, it's not going to matter if you, like, you know, if you fast for two weeks and you clean out your whole body and then you break your fast with, you know, Taco Bell and Dunkin' Donuts. That, that's not going to matter, Right. But if you eat healthy every day, first of all, you're going to get reasonably clean, not as clean as you would just having green juices for a week. But you're going to establish control. You're going to get the panicked binge eating feeling out of your system. And then if you want to add some intermittent fasting or you know some periods of time where you play with that evolutionary mechanism just a little bit, you challenge it a little bit, then I'm okay with that. But most, mostly I prefer that binge eaters don't, don't fast. 
And Glenn, what are some of the myths too around or mental roadblocks that people might struggle with, um, again, with binge eating or sometimes you know, folks who are just uh, struggling with, with weight gain, you know, some of the ones that you talk about in the book, 90% is, uh, you know, it's not good enough. If I binged a lot, I'm doomed. What Cheat days even. Uh, could you touch on a few of those and, and, and how they could, uh, you know, if they're sufficient or not, not sufficient to be able to help people who are struggling with this? Well, one of the myths goes back to the will, understanding of willpower. And that's the idea that we should work with guidelines as opposed to rules. See, the problem with a guideline, if you say, I'm just going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time and eat it 10% of the time. If you could execute that, then in theory, it's a really good guideline. It's a good north star to shoot for. The problem is it requires you to make a decision every time you're in front of a chocolate bar. And so when you're sitting at Starbucks, that's another decision. You're about to check out, that's another decision. And... Um, all day long you're making food decisions, you're wearing down your willpower. Whereas if you say, I only eat chocolate on the last Saturday of the calendar month or only on Saturdays each week, then at least for all the other days of the month, you've made all of your chocolate decisions and you don't have to wear down your willpower. So rules work better than guidelines. Rules work better than guidelines. Same thing with I'll, I'll eat when I'm hungry and I'll stop when I'm full. That's a guideline, and you're constantly having to ask yourself, am I too hungry or too full? It's also very subjective, and it gives your pig a lot of wiggle room to say, oh, baby, we're hungry. Believe me, we're hungry, or we're not full yet. Come on, baby, we're not full yet. Let's get a little more in. Whereas if you say, um, if you really want something to control your volume, you could say, a meal is only 45 minutes from the first calorie to the last, and I always leave at least two hours between meals. So it's a very objective external criteria that's a very specific rule. There's no room for subjectivity and there's no decisions to be made. So, or at least not about when to eat and when not to eat. There are decisions about what to eat and how much to eat, but not, not when to start and stop. So those are the kind of myths that I'm talking about with regards to rules versus guidelines. There are also myths about this whole idea that we have a disease and we're powerless to control ourselves and we have to go to you know, meetings at least three times a week and hang out with other people who can't control themselves and, um, you know, and call our sponsors every day. You know, look, if that works for you, I don't want to take you out of it, but there's no scientific evidence for it. And, uh, and, and well, there's not. I mean, first of all, the, those treatment programs don't, aren't amenable to scientific testing because, you know, I'm not saying I have scientific evidence either. I'm too small. Um, but what I'm really proposing is common sense. I'm not proposing ludicrous ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not telling you you can't control yourself and you're not in control over what your hands and your arms and your mouth and your tongue do. Um, or that some mysterious force or some chronic progressive mysterious disease is overtaking you, which can't be proven either. I'm just telling you that you can cultivate confidence and be very, very clear about what healthy eating and not healthy eating is. And then, you know, look at your motivation and, and listen for that destructive part of your brain telling you that that you should break it. Um, and I, so I, I don't think we have a disease. I think we have extra healthy appetites which have been corrupted by industry for a profit. I don't think we should be blaming our ancestors, our family for or genetics for our overeating. I mean, there, there's some component of that. Mm -hmm. There's some genetic component. But even if you... Even if you look at the concordance between you know, parents and children and, and obesity, it doesn't account for all the variants. There's still a very large proportion of variants that's unaccounted for where you have the control to intervene. So we don't have a disease. We're not powerless. Um, the advertising industry is a lot stronger than you think it is. You probably think advertising doesn't affect you, but it affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you. So you're, you might want to stop watching TV for a little while and see if that impacts your cravings and a lot of myths like that that drive me crazy, and I could get up on a soapbox and talk about it forever. But um, I'm not sure if that's where, that's where you want me to go. Oh no, well, I mean, I'm not I'm dovetailing into that idea of, of advertisements. That definitely today with social media and then the the messages that we're getting on those platforms. You know, what's your opinion, or, or how does that influence this whole story of, of influencing, you know, the food choices or, or frankly any choices that people are making? Well, look, Mark, there there are over. 5,000 messages a year about food beamed at us through the internet and the airwaves, and it's more since social media has taken over. And how many of them are suggesting we have more whole fruits and vegetables? Maybe a dozen. 
So if ninety nine percent like that's for sure. <laughs> right? And so if ninety-nine percent of the messaging that we get suggests that we should have um, processed, packaged industrial food for someone else's profit, and ninety-nine percent of the population says they don't really like fruit anymore. I, I need a I need a study to back that up, but I think we're getting there. Then then you know, how do you think it's affecting it? So so um, on the other hand, if you use it correctly, there are resources available to support you. I'm mean, like, wait, I have a free forum where people who, I'm sorry about the dogs in the background. <laughs> no worries. Um, there's someone at the door and they don't think that person deserves to live. <laughs> <laughs> but but there, there are resources available where, you know, not everybody you meet will pull you down with food. There are people that will bring you up. And if you... If you you know come to my forum or come to other forums where people are really trying to choose longer term gratification versus short term gratification, and they're trying to get back to more you know whole, fresh, ripe, raw, natural foods, then you can use social media to your advantage. Also, I certainly do. Yeah, t- uh, terrific insights uh, here, Glenn. Definitely want to respect your time here today. Um, so, last couple questions for you before we wrap up. Um, you know, as a clinical psychologist yourself, having done research, what do you think the evolution of research in this area is looking like over the next five or ten years for solutions? Well, I haven't done an awful lot of research on eating disorders in my. I mean, I, I did my own study. I've talked to a bunch of experts, but I haven't really. I don't really consider myself to be an expert on all of the eating disorder academic research that's out there. I I did an interview with, what's her name? Oh, Ashley Higgins of Villanova University. And she did a meta-analysis of the academic research on uh, on binge eating and anorexia and bulimia. And what she found for binge eating, interestingly, was that it was the kind of cognitive reframing intervention that was being most effective. So it, it's fairly consistent with Never Binge Again. It's not Never Binge Again exactly, but it's more or less what I happened on and, and what I've been doing. Um, it's cognitive behavioral therapy is really what's what's been effective. Plus, um, there's some SSRI medications that seem to be seem to be helping if I remember correctly. But I, I think there's a paucity of that information has not been spread. There are if you talk to most people in the eating disorders community, they really believe that intuitive eating is most effective, that the problem is people tend to over-restrict, which is, a, which is a big part of the problem, and I'm very much against that. But their solution is that you should restrict nothing, that there's no such thing as a healthy versus unhealthy food, and you need to teach people to connect more with their intuition. I, I think that that would work if we were in the tropics 75,000 years ago when we evolved. I think you could trust your intuition then. Now with, you know, I mean, there actually, there actually is flavored cardboard in the food system, and there, there are so many things that really are meant to overtake your intuition that I, I, think it's, I think it's silly to imagine that you can just eat intuitively anything that you want to and you're going to be okay. So, some people do. I don't want to take that away from them if it really works, but... If you're listening to this and intuitive eating isn't worth it for you, then you might consider a rules-based approach like, like never binge again. Um, Terrific. I've definitely been surprised in clinic of just the, the array of different demographics of folks who've um, struggled with, with binge eating. So it's definitely been an eye-opener for me as a, as a clinician. And you know, if we wrap this up here, Doc, with sort of one piece of advice that you might give someone uh, who's struggling with binge eating, what would that be? <laughs> Jim Rohn said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I believe that freedom sits on top of discipline. It's not its enemy. I think that, I think that a jazz musician can only express his soul or her soul after years and years of discipline practice, knowing the scales, knowing the structure of music, so that they know when they can break it and when they can get back to it. I think that freedom sits on top of discipline, and I think that a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And all you need to do is pick one rule and get started. Just one rule. What's your single most difficult trigger food or behavior? Maybe you want to never eat again standing up. Maybe you don't want to eat in the car. Maybe, maybe uh, like me, chocolate doesn't belong in your diet. What is it? One, one thing. And don't, if, 
if saying I'm never going to do this again sounds difficult, don't say, well, I'm never going to have chocolate again. First of all, you can, you can make exceptions for it if you spell them out. But don't say I'm never going to have chocolate again. Say, I'm going to become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate. It's much different and it's much more consistent with things you're doing already. So that's my long-winded advice. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, so many terrific insights in the book, Glenn. Really appreciate you carving out the time today. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your fantastic work? Well, it's all at neverbingeagain.com. And if you click the big red button and sign up for the free bonuses, I will get you a free copy of the book itself in Kindle Nocopedia format. I will also get you a, a set of food plan starter templates. These are um, sample sets of food rules for any dietary philosophy. So we have one for paleo, we have one for ketogenic, we have one for macrobiotic, we have ones for vegans, we have one for point counters, for calorie counters, for high-carb people. Your dietary philosophy is very likely there, and you take them and you customize them to make them your own. You can see what types of rules might work for you. The last thing you'll get when you're there is a set of recorded coaching sessions. I know it must be really weird that, oh my God, there's these two doctors on the line are talking about having a pig inside of them, and <laughs> you know what what the hell am I listening to? So it sounds like it's probably really harsh and it sounds weird and unbelievable, but listen to these calls and you'll see people's despair and sense of powerlessness and depression turn into hope and enthusiasm in just one session. And it's a very compassionate, self-esteem enhancing, life-giving process. So um, it's neverbingeagain.com, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button and sign up for the free reader bonuses. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include that link here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Glenn or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform, and definitely share Glenn's insights by sending out a tweet, posting on Facebook, or adding to your Instagram story. Awesome, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.